0: Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hanger Z Podcast. I want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's aviation unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli-Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy.
1: this week's helicopter podcast, I sit down and talk with Ben Clayton. Ben is the CEO of Life Flight Network. If you're not familiar with Life Flight Network, they're the fourth largest air medical company in the United States. And they're located up in the Pacific Northwest, actually near my hometown. So that was really exciting to go and have that conversation. Uh, We talk about Ben's uh, military experience. We talk about his transition over to the civilian world And then we talk about how he became the CEO of Lifelight, from starting there as a line pilot. That's right, a line pilot in 2015. So this is an awesome story, an awesome conversation. And if you're interested in becoming an air medical pilot, Ben and I kind of discuss our opinions on uh, air medical and what it's like to be an air medical pilot. And if you've maybe ever considered going the uh, administrative executive route in helicopters, then this is also a great episode for you as Ben has worked his way up through the ranks to now be the CEO. Awesome chat. I loved recording it, and I think you'll love it as well.
0: As always, a special thanks to Celicopter for producing this podcast. Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Celicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network— and a proprietary seventy six step listing strategy, helicopter will convert your listing from May day to payday. ready to get started. text helicopter to one eight five five helicopter that's helicopter to 1-855-735-5226. and a helicopter pilot agent will reach out. helicopter list it, sell it done
1: all right, well, welcome to the helicopter podcast. I'm Halsey Scheider, and I am at Life Flight Network today up in Aurora, Oregon, uh, with the CEO, Ben Clayton. Ben, what's going on?
0: Hey, Halsey. Nice to see you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming in. I feel like looking, uh, we could be brothers, <laughs> maybe. Maybe, maybe we've got the same haircut anyways. <laughs> same haircut. This is audio only, but
1: uh, just to set up the scene, Ben and I both have a great head of hair. <laughs> uh, by head of hair, I mean we have no hair, uh, but we both have great shaped heads, so... I think that's a good uh, step in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for having me up here today. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks for coming out. We were kind of talking about it before, but you know, growing up just down the road in Lake Oswego, if you're listening to the podcast, don't judge, uh, <laughs> but that's where I grew up. Uh, Lifelight was flying over my house all the time. Uh, you know, Coming over, coming back to Aurora or whatnot and seeing those helicopters, I think actually kind of planted the seed uh, I always wanted to be a pilot. I thought I'm kind of more of an airplane guy. But seeing the helicopters constantly and then doing some flight training in airplanes out here at Aurora Aviation and seeing the helicopters here kind of inspired me. So to me, it's kind of like a pinch me moment to be sitting with you, the CEO of this company that I've been familiar with for so long. Uh, so it's just
0: really grateful to be here. So thanks for having me. Yeah, no, great, and hopefully we can inspire another generation of, uh, of young guys to come up and, totally. and, uh, and and be pilots. Yeah, it's actually been really cool.
1: Uh, some of the biggest response that I've gotten the podcast is a lot from young men and women that are either just starting their flight training or they're getting into it. And the number one job that they want is air medical. So it's pretty cool to, uh, to hopefully be able to share your experience, not only as a military pilot converting over to civilian, and then line pilot now to CEO um, and, you know, some of my past experiences as well to hopefully keep encouraging people to to apply for jobs uh, in the air medical field.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's great to hear that, that you you get a lot of feedback about people that want to be air ambulance pilots because they're, they're in need. It's a pretty good schedule. You know, you get to be home every night. Um, you know, typically, it's a seven-day on, seven-day off thing. And then you're out there helping save lives every day. So it's... It's a pretty pretty cool job.
1: Yeah, the mission specific is really cool. And I think actually for the civilian sector, it's kind of like the coolest job that you can have. I mean, I guess there's like, yeah, if you hang a saw from a helicopter, that's pretty cool too, (laughs) or like the old heli torch. But as far as like, for me, I flew air medical, being able to fly a fairly well equipped helicopter with autopilot and MVGs is not something that a lot of civilians get to experience. Yeah. You military guys obviously have more experience in, in uh, getting to do that. So I think as a civilian job goes, it's the, kind of the closest thing that we can get to flying in the military, which I think is pretty cool, and that's what I really enjoyed about it. And, yes, the schedule was great, seven on, <laughs> seven off. Is that what you guys are doing up here? Yes, yep. Is there any mix in that, or is it just – I know that some places have kind of different four nights on than three days. Is it just seven, seven? Rotating days and nights.
0: Yeah, typically we'll do either three days on followed by four nights on, or, or four days on followed by three nights. Um, there's, you know, if the float pilots, their schedule kind of can change a little bit depending on when, when and where they're needed. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's you know, you get 182 and a half days off a year, um, and then uh, yeah, that's
1: awesome. So I want to learn about you and your past and everything, but just to kind of set the scene a little bit for our listeners. Uh, I'm of course very familiar with Lifelight Network, being from this area. But if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about Lifelight Network, the history, your guys' service area, uh, what you guys are operating, airplane-wise, helicopter-wise, uh, just kind of give us that picture.
0: Uh, yeah, thanks. Well, um, you know, by the time this podcast airs, we'll have celebrated our 45th anniversary. Congratulations. Of, uh, of thank you, of, of being in service in, in this area. Um, you know, We started out in a, in a 1974 Alouette III. Nice. It uh, was, our, was our first uh, helicopter. In fact, we've got the tail boom uh, out in the hangar uh, from, from that helicopter, and we're going to get it fixed up and, and painted up nicely and restored um, and figure out something cool to do with it kind of in celebration of our anniversary.
1: I'm almost even having a hard time like, picturing how you put a patient in an Alouette. <laughs> I guess I can kind of see it. But yeah, I'm glad that worked. <laughs> yeah, so uh,
0: you know we've we've come a long way since then. Um, so now, uh, you know, here we are, 45 years later. Um, we're the fourth largest air ambulance company in the country. We're the largest not-for-profit air ambulance company in the country. We're owned by a consortium of four uh, health systems. So Oregon Health and Science University. Providence, Legacy, and St. Alfonso Regional Medical Center over in, in Boise. Um, and we've, we've grown over the years um, really in response to the, the needs of the communities um, as a, and as a not-for-profit. I mean, that's, that's our one goal. It's, you know, save lives, be available to the communities, um, you know, in service to them, and, and provide excellent level of patient care. Um, and so that's, that's where we are now. We currently have uh, 28 rotor bases and uh, 10 fixed-wing bases.
1: That's incredible. And airframe wise, on the helicopter side, I yeah. guess we can kind of talk about the airplanes, <laughs> but who cares? Um, no, I'm kidding. But on the helicopter side, what what are you guys operating right now?
0: Yeah, so we've got a we've got a mixed fleet, a bit as you imagine. You know, we're being in four different states. There's different you know uh, environments, different requirements in each of those. So we're in Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and Montana, um, and so we have a mix of uh, Bell 429s. We've got uh, Airbus EC 135, mostly P2 pluses. Uh, we've got Bell 407 GXIs, uh, and then we have AW-119 KXs.
1: Very cool. And what's the total fleet size? Uh,
0: we're about uh, 50 aircraft total, um, and uh, with 10 or 12 fixed wing, and then the rest is helicopters.
1: That's crazy. So 45 years, you've gone from one Alouette, yeah, now to airplanes, helicopters, bases all over. And the service area is
0: Oregon. Yeah, Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and Montana is where our bases are located. Obviously, we'll take patients where they need to go. So, you know, if they need to go to Salt Lake or Colorado or wherever they need to go, you know, we, we can get them there.
1: Very cool. I uh, my um, The guy that did all my check rides was, like a, I think, a 30-year pilot here at LifeLite. Oh, cool. Mark Holstadt.
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that name <laughs> it r- does. rings a bell. Uh, and, in fact, we have the LifeLite 2. It's our Aurora headquarters as the Mark Holstadt uh, you know, kind of commemorative base. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, he's, I think he's I remember about yeah. that. Yeah,
1: because I think he, I think when he was doing my check rides, which was some years ago, I feel like mm-hmm. he was at 27 or 28 years already. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, oh man, keep a good relationship with this guy <laughs> and maybe I can get a job at Lifelight.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> so, he's kind of a legend. So, yeah. he's
1: a bit of a legend and the nicest guy ever. <laughs> I don't know if you had the chance to to interact with Mark, but he's a gentle giant. I uh, <laughs> love doing my check rides with him. Um, so, Kind of transitioning over to you. Yeah. You started in the military, you're from Oregon. Yeah. You literally grew up in Canby. I'm pointing like people can see where I'm right, pointing. Yeah. But uh, if you're listening and you're not familiar with the area, this is pretty neat, the fact that you're essentially in your backyard and you're the CEO of the fourth largest air medical provider in your backyard. Yeah. Like, was that, that's like a Nicholas Sparks book. Like, this is <laughs> perfect. Like, how how did that all work out? And you know, yeah. I know that you started the military. Where where do we go from there?
0: So, yeah, I, I flew the CH-53 Echoes in, in the uh, Marine Corps. Um, I was stationed in Miramar. I mean, it's tough duty, but somebody's got to do it. Of course. Uh, you know, but no, um, so that's really where I got my start. My last tour was as a flight instructor, um, and probably the favorite job that I've ever had until now was, was as a flight instructor uh, back at Whiting Field in Florida, um, you know, training all the new... Uh, new helicopter pilots for for the Marines, Navy, and Coast Guard, and a few international students. Um, and they're, you know, we're flying Bell 206s. Nice. Uh, no autopilot, but they're <laughs> IFR certified because it's the military. So, oh, gosh. Uh, you know, you're flying approaches to MINS, uh, you know, ILS to MINS um, in a... In a In a 206. Bell 206. Wow. Um, so pretty pretty good experience, great experience. Got a lot. Of, you get to do a lot of flying there. So I would some days fly six or eight hours. Um, so that was that was a great experience. And then it really gets you... You know, back into the civilian rules when you're when you're doing that because you're teaching all of the civilian kind of rules, all the you know airway navigation, all those kinds of things that you know as a military pilot sometimes you forget because military has their own set of rules, um, and I think that really helped with the transition to the the civilian side. just um, yeah. doing that.
1: I, I've I've talked. I have several buddies that have come from military to civilian, and I know that there's sometimes a bit of a transition. Um, you know, in the military, you're typically flying with Two pilots. Yep. You're in really, really nice equipment. I even remember having students, you know, come from a Black Hawk mm-hmm. to an R-22, yep. you know, <laughs> doing training. And well, on the Black Hawk we could land this way. I'm like, well, we're in an R-22. <laughs> we can't quite do it this way. Um, with, with that flight instruction, was, was it all military instructors or was it a mix of military and civilian? Because I do know there are some civilian instructors teaching that ab initio training.
0: Yeah, so um, we had civilian instructors in the, on the simulator side when we were there, and most of those, I think all, all of them were retired military. Okay. Um, and then, uh, but they're, for the most part, uh, all the instructors that are actually flight instructors are, are military people that have done their at least one fleet tour, and now they're coming back to kind of shed their, their experience and knowledge. Um, and then you have a reserve cadre that are there, and some of those guys had been there for you know, 15, 20 years as reservists okay. um, doing, doing that flight training. And what year did you finish that up? Um, so I left uh, there in 2013. Okay. Um, and my first, I went to work for a company called CHC, um, who's a international oil and gas, mostly. Um, mm-hmm. They do some search and rescue in the UK. Uh, but I, I got to fly AW-139s AW 139s for them in Mozambique for a couple of years. Um, Sounds and, awesome. Yeah, it was. It was not a bad job. <laughs> he,
1: not not bad at all. And you said that was for oil and gas. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying to connect dots. I don't think I had anyone that was there.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's. Um, oh, I've got a lot of good good friends from there. It was, and that was a really good experience. Um, you know, going through the type rating for for the, the 139. Uh, I was pretty young at the time. I was early 30s. So I was the youngest person in my type rating class by like a decade. Yeah. Um, but you learn a lot of things there. I mean, because there's like, for example, uh, there's something called floats on helicopters that go over the water in the military. I'd never even heard of floats, so I'm, you know, in class raising my hand. They're, they kept talking about floats and how to pop the floats, and I'm raise my hand like an idiot. You know, what are floats? What are floats? And they're like you. You deployed on a ship for seven <laughs> months and you don't know what floats are. Um, so
1: that's wild. Yeah. I guess I always just assumed that the military helicopters nope. probably had some type of floats. Um, so, I mean, obviously not knowing about the floats, was there anything else that was kind of challenging coming from a, a military background to going to the civilian back, or to this
0: first civilian job? You know, I think it was for me a pretty pretty seamless transition, I think mostly because I, I was able to do that, that fleet, or the the flight instructor tour, where you know, you're getting into the FAR AIM, you're studying a ton in, in order to be able to ask the students questions um, and to teach the students. So um, doing that and getting really, really in-depth knowledge of, you know, the nuances of, of the you know, civilian world and, and the rules and the regulations in the FAR AIM um, was really helpful. So, um, and then, you know, military, it's all hand flying. Uh, at least it was when I was in, and so, you know, that makes it easier. So you're learning to use an autopilot kind of for the first time, um, but all the hand-flying stuff, you know, came came pretty easy. Came naturally. Yeah. The 139 must be awesome, too. Oh, it's, yeah, it was a phenomenal aircraft to fly. I like what I'm doing
1: in my career now on the sales side, but I did kind of stall my flying career a little bit. To I've never <laughs> flown anything with two engines. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, so... Um, I'm a little envious, you know, with guys that have got experience in say a 139 or even a 429. You know, I'd love to yeah. f- love to get my hands on a 429. But uh, I guess you pick your path, right? So, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you do that for a couple years. Uh, was there a little burnout that that caused it just to be two years, or just wanted to kind of change gears?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, the travel gets gets pretty tough. at uh, A young young family at the time. You know, my daughter, I think when I started there was about four and um, so she's getting ready to start school, and um, so the, the travel gets tough. And to get to, to, get to Mozambique, it's a you know, five-hour flight to Atlanta, and then it's a 14-hour flight to South Africa, and then you've got a layover that's 12 or 14 hours, and then you've got another three-hour flight up to, I was in Pemba, um, and so, and then you're gone for six weeks at a time, uh, you know, and so it's just the travel got, got kind of long, um, and so uh, an opportunity came up here um, and it that worked out well, actually, because right after I left, the oil market kind of had a big downturn. Um, and so uh, I had already had, had the job here, so it worked out pretty well.
1: Yeah, that would be wild. I had some friends that flew in Angola. Yeah. And uh, some of the guys did it for years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, month on, month off, travel. Yeah. And sometimes, I guess, I don't know how it worked for you, but I was just talking about what buddy Sean about it. He would, some days, duty on, the day that he would actually get there. <laughs> So here he is finishing this long travel period, and then he's dutying on. You know, it's like, Phew. I just got back from Thailand, and that kicked my butt for like seven days on jet lag. So,
0: yeah, fortunately, you know, at least the contract that I was on, you know, with CHC, and CHC was very that you know they do a safety summit every year; they're very safety oriented, and so I never had to do that where it's like you show up and then they want you to fly that day. Yeah, uh, but, I thought
1: that was wild. Right. I definitely couldn't do it. Um, so you, you had an opportunity, obviously. Being from Camby, you were familiar with LifeLight.
0: Yeah, you know, I was, and I had kind of driven by the airport, um, and, you know, I was like, yeah, oh, maybe I'll drop off a resume, you know. And so uh, I, I happened to drop it off at the front desk, and then, um, you know, a couple weeks later, got a phone call. And, uh, they just said, and I was getting ready to go do another trip uh, to to Africa, and so I said, well, I can interview, but I, I, it'd have to be, like, this week because I'm leaving on Saturday or whatever it was, and so... Um, yeah, they had me come in and um, made an offer that day, and that
1: was that. That's awesome. I like that you, you know, kind of were. This is kind of a funny story. I, my first turbine job, was with Maverick Helicopters, okay, flying sure. tours, and I had lost my my job in Texas, and I was kind of desperate. Mm-hmm. I was like parking cars as a valet, and was like I need to be flying, and I could never hear back from anyone. You know, it's kind of like that during that time that it almost seemed like a bit of a desert of of hiring especially for low time guys and so i i i heard that maverick was bringing people on with little to no turbine time which was a kind of a new thing for mm-hmm. them so i sent a resume off and like that day i heard from the chief pilot which never happened it never happens ever you know and mm-hmm. it finally happened and it was just before christmas and i was so stressed i wasn't making any money and the chief pilot there at the time said, yeah, come, you know, we'll get you in for an interview after Christmas. And I was like, oh, man, I I can't wait till that. That's in three or four weeks. So I was like, I'm actually going to be in Vegas this week, like, if you're available. And, you know, sure enough, like, two days later, he's like, cool, can you meet me tomorrow? And I was in San Antonio at the time, like, I better get airfare. (laughs) But, you know, I think it's important sometimes, like, to, you know, if you need to get a job, you know, just do what it takes to, to get there. And I've never publicly told that story. So now I've uh, now the told world it to everyone. Now the world knows. <laughs> Jim O, uh, if you're listening, I'm sorry for telling you <laughs> that I was in Vegas, but I showed up on time. So uh, <laughs> I was there. <laughs> um, so you, you get hired at Lifelight as a line pilot. Yeah. And this is, still boggles me. I can't, I'm very excited to hear kind of your, your process and your experience here. But that's in 2015, 2023 now. And here I'm sitting with you. Uh, in the corner office as the CEO of yeah. this uh, large air medical company. Was that something that you ever even thought of, or you just came on to be a line pilot?
0: Yeah, no, I my philosophy kind of in general is is do the best you can do wherever you are. Um, you know, when when I was in Africa working, um, you know, we had a really great crew there, and we all just worked hard, and, and even when we weren't flying – you know, we'd get together and study, right? Be professional, learn everything you can learn, and and so I've always kind of had that mentality. I never had a oh, if I do this, then that I could get the next step, right? Um, things have just worked out, I guess. Um, you know that how I got into the management role here, uh, I was a line pilot, and then. We were growing and they needed a training guy. They, didn't, they never had a training person before. Um, it was always the assistant chief pilots or the chief pilot, DO, that would do all the training. And um, we had, were about to do a big merger uh, and so and, and grow, and a lot of pilots needed to be trained. So they were gonna hire a training guy. Well, I had, I had a training background from uh, my time in, in the Marines, and so I applied for that job and, and got it. So then I was like a float pilot and a training pilot. Um, and so I did that. Uh, so I was a, f- a float pilot for a year, and then I was you know, the training pilot slash float pilot for about a year. Um, and we were, we were getting ready to open a base in Bozeman, Montana, and I was uh, standing a shift, uh, standing a night shift in Astoria, Oregon. Uh, and I got off the night shift, and I'm driving home, uh, which is about a two-hour drive home for me. And um, the current director of safety at that time uh called me up and he said, he, he knew that I'd been to aviation safety officer school and when I was in the Marines. Um, and he, and so he knew that I had that safety kind of background. And so he called up and he said, hey, have, have you ever thought about, you know, being the safety guy? Because I want to go be a line pilot in Bozeman, Montana. So he was going to step back from management and then go, you know, do the seven day on, seven day off schedule and, and get to fly a lot in, in Bozeman. And I kind of said, yeah, I mean, I, I guess. I hadn't really thought about it. But it, and he said, okay, well, the CEO would like to meet with you in, like, two hours. Can you get here? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, you know, I drove in here, interviewed, and, uh, and you know, a couple months, well, like a month later, I guess, I was the, the director of safety. Um, and so then, again, just grow where you planted. Study hard. Work hard. Um, and then uh, I've had various kind of opportunities since then, you know, just kind of doing good things at the company Um you know, I think I spent some time in, as the D.O. Uh, on an interim basis while we were recruiting uh, for our current D.O. Um, I got, eventually got promoted to be the chief safety officer, and so I was in charge of several different departments in, in addition to safety uh, at the company, um, and then eventually became the C.O.O., uh, and I was the C.O.O. for about a year, uh, and then and then moved into this role.
1: For our listeners out there that might be new to aviation or haven't been part of a big flight department, when you say safety officer, yeah. our director of safety. What did that role entitle here at lifelight
0: So, you know, at LifeLite Network, specifically at our company, safety is a huge thing, right? It's it's the focus of, of everything. So we tend to run a little bit heavy on, on the safety department, right? It's not... Uh, uh, some, some companies will have a safety officer, like you said, or, um, you know, but we're at a, it's a director level position. Um, the, the current director of safety reports directly to me um, as the CEO. Um, I was the director of safety and risk management reporting to the CEO. Um, and, and so it involves, you know, knowing things, you know, know knowing the people, getting out, talking to the people, uh, one of the things that I instituted was a crew resource management program, an in-person crew resource management program, um, and so we uh, and go around in you know, groups of, you know, twenty or so people, and uh, you know, pilots, uh, paramedics, nurses, and now mechanics are doing it as well, um, and we do crew resource management because if you think about it from a safety aspect, what are the things that are happening out in the industry that are causing people to have crashes uh, that, are, that are hurting people, and it often comes down to Lack of communication or, or lack of good, solid crew resource management, um, and so it's really important to focus on on those skills. So that was a big focus of, of what I did, um, you know, when I was when I was in the safety role. You know, we have a very robust reporting system here. Um, so we're we're coming up on about nine hundred employees now. Uh, when I was in the role, I think you know we had about six hundred employees, but we would get maybe seven hundred safety reports a year, and Everybody is out there and we encourage and and even mandate that if you see something, say something, Mm -hmm. put it into a report so that we can look into it and figure out, you know, how do we make it better? How do we prevent whatever happened or almost happened? Because that's the goal, right? Like figure out, hey, this is a risk. Nothing bad happened yet, but I saw this and it's a risk and how can we mitigate that so that nothing bad does happen? Sure. So that's what I spent a lot of time doing is, you know, talking to people. They would see something you know, that was a risk, okay, how do we mitigate that? How do we uh, improve upon that? We also have a, you know, safety and risk management committee that's composed of line personnel across all the disciplines um, and they'll come up with ideas. We'll bounce things off of them and say, hey, what do you guys think of this? Um, this report came in, what, what do you guys think?
1: That's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, safety, you know, is, is, in air medical especially has really changed a mm-hmm. lot, or I guess, you know, the, the term safety, Yeah. you know, um, carried a different tone, say, 20 years ago than it does today. And what I experienced when I flew Air Medical and then even in the flight school that I went to here just in Hillsboro, is that it seems that a lot of the same uh, hazards were happening on kind of a systemic basis. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, the flight school that I went to, the Air Medical Company that I worked for, you know, they were always supportive of getting the feedback even if you as a pilot maybe thought you made a mistake or did something wrong because then they're able to kind of put together a a systemic hey this is this is not just a singular problem Mm -hmm. that you know Halsey had this is actually happening to Halsey and it happened to so and so and so and so and you can kind of start to see okay hey, maybe this is a little bit of a flaw in the way that we're doing things Mm -hmm. and you know learning from it growing from it you know I'm not so sure you know fifteen twenty years ago that air medical companies specifically were really asking for too much reporting. You know, um, I know the industry has changed a lot. Um, and I'm grateful that I flew, um, you know, recently in air medical and not 20 years ago for a lot of reasons, you know, obviously the equipment's changed a lot, but I think the biggest thing is just, um, you know, allowing pilots to make good pilot decisions. Yeah. And supporting pilots, and, and I'm sure that you guys uh, have probably instituted that here at lifefoot as well.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's it's actually really encouraging across the industry to see to see that kind of culture shift. Um, we're part of the Air Medical Operators Association, and um, I was on the safety committee for a number of years. And now our current director of safety goes to the safety committee meetings, and um, and you know collectively, the industry will share stories. Hey, this, not just, so not just within the company, but hey, this happened to us. Uh, it could happen to you too. Um, and and so those are, are so critical and, and they meet in person four times a year um, as the safety committee. And I'm on the board of directors there now. Um, and, and those filter to the board of directors level. And, and so even though many of us are competitors that are in that room, um, it's all about safety. And it's all, how, how do we get better as an industry? How do we ensure that we're preventing, you know, crashes or pre- preventing bad things from happening? Um, and it's, I think it's really encouraging.
1: Uh, yeah, no, I think it's great. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, competitors, you know, whether you have an accident or a competitor has an accident, first and foremost, you never want to have any type of loss of life. Yeah. And second off, it's not great for any part of the helicopter industry to have accidents, yeah. so it's good to hear that companies are coming together and sharing safety insight to hopefully get to some target where we could get to a point where uh, we could have you know little to no accidents, you know, which would be fantastic. At the uh, at the last operator that I worked at, and actually at my flight school, that was kind of an early adapter to SMS. Adopted onto a just culture, yeah is that something that you guys have instituted here at lifelight and for our listeners that may not be familiar with that term,
0: what does that mean to you sure yeah no it's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up um, you know a, a just culture. It, so in order to find out about these things that we can share with the industry that, so that we can get better, uh, you have to have a just culture. And what I mean by that is people have to be willing uh, and feel safe that they can raise their hand and say, hey, I screwed up or I almost screwed up or I was thinking this and that was the wrong thing to think. And they're not worried that you know they're going to lose their job if, if they speak up, right? Because it can make all of us better. And that's something that we've really tried hard to inculcate throughout the organization. Um, And we have really great examples of that. We'll have pilots call and say, hey, I think I screwed this up. Can you pull the tapes uh, from the video? Uh, You know, we've got the camera or whatever. You know, can you pull the tape so I can see what I did and see it, you know, and we can debrief as, as a crew. Um, and that's so encouraging when stuff like that happens because, you know, it just shows the maturity and the professionalism that our pilots have and that our crews have because our crews want the pilots to tell them as well, right? Of course. Um, and then they're not, they're not castigating the the pilots for, oh, you almost made a mistake or, you know, it's like, hey, how do we all get, get better collectively? And then we'll share those stories, you know, when we do the crew resource management training, um, you know, and, and share these, you know, errors or mistakes. Um, that, that people have made in, in the spirit of, of getting better.
1: I think Just Culture has been great, not just for air medical, but for the entire helicopter industry. Yeah. So many different uh, companies and operators are instituting Just Culture, and I think it's making an impact. I think another big thing on the air medical side, so if you're listening and, and you wanna be an air medical pilot, one of the biggest advices that I can give from my experience is I think, again, 15, 20 years ago, a pilot may look at a crew and not think that they're an integral part of mm-hmm. the safety of that mission. I've heard terms like self-loading baggage yeah. and other things like that. And uh, I know that's really shifted. And it sounds like you guys are being proactive with your crew resource management for pilots, medics, nurses working together um, to have a
0: positive result. Yeah, and you know, it, it part of the, it, it comes down to trust amongst the crew, right? And and not just trust, like, oh, I trust the pilot is going to be great, and so I don't have to worry about anything. It's you no, know, like, I trust the crew uh, to be looking out for me. If maybe you know, everybody could have a bad day, could make a mistake, you know, and and the crew is trusting that if they ask a question, somebody's not going to take offense of it, offense to it. Um, you know, hey, th- that cloud doesn't look good to me. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, uh, and then if you if you ever want to get a pilot going, ask them about weather, um, you know, and, totally. they'll, <laughs> and they'll wax eloquent for, for quite a while. Of course. Uh, you know, but have those conversations, ask the questions, be a good teammate, you know, um, and it's, you know, uh, that's the goal, and and that's, you have, but you have to have a positive culture, you have to have a trusting culture, and that's something that we really, really try hard here uh, to make sure that, that everybody understands that, you know, we're, we're out there, not just to avoid errors, to avoid mistakes, but to be excellent in everything that we do, whether that's clinical care, whether that's piloting, whether it's the maintenance staff, whether it's the admin staff that's supporting everything. It's it's how do you achieve excellence, maintain excellence. It's not just a matter of avoiding a mistake.
1: Sure. Yeah, I know it's, um, it's a big shift in, in, in mindset and coming together as a team and, you know, trying to bring your A game every day, but doing it collectively, mm-hmm. you know, is um, there's a lot of factors that go into an air medical mission, you know, a lot of things, you um, you know for me personally, uh, I was flying in a fairly sparse area in South Texas, a lot of nighttime scene calls mm-hmm. you know you're flying in a dark hole in the middle of nowhere, having that extra set of eyes in the back with goggles on yeah. was comforting and reassuring mm-hmm. you know and, and um, you know i I was smart enough to know that I'm not actually God's gift to <laughs> flying helicopters yeah. right I'm a human and I have my human limits. Yeah. And so there' was many times that my crew, whether it was on a recon uh or whatever it may be, had said something that, "Hey, what about that wire down there? Do you see that? Okay, I didn't see that actually. Thank you for pointing that out yeah. or hey, I did see that. I didn't announce it yet. You know, being able to work together like that um you know, I think that there's probably been situations in my career on the air medical side that maybe saved my butt a little bit by allowing my crew mm-hmm. uh to be a part of the mission, not just people sitting in the back. Um, so that that's been important for me. And if if you're listening and you want to get into air medical, uh, you know, come in here. You know, especially where I was at, some of the crew members have been flying in helicopters longer than I've been a helicopter pilot. Right. And they've been flying in that specific mission for a long time. So they may not know the what retreating blade stall is, or you know, the dissimetry of lift, right. whatever. But they understand that mission, mm-hmm. and they know what a you know how you can do it safely, and so going into a base and not coming off as a know-it-all, right? Um, especially you know straight out of Neo, you know you <laughs> want to come in there, be humble, uh, make sure that you know you're open to their feedback.
0: Well, yeah, you know that humility I think is is so important, um, and I'm reminded of a of a military story. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I was up, pr- you know, pr- you do a lot of practice in the military. So you're out practicing these desert landings at night, no, you know, MVGs, no goggles, you know, or no moon, you're flying on goggles. Um, and I remember this, uh, this flight and I'm, uh, and, and I'm flying, and I'm shooting. I mean, this is going to be the perfect desert approach and this thing, I mean, I'm shooting this approach and in the 53, you've got, you kind of ride the shakers down. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the perfect no, no hover landing Uh, you know, it's, it's just, I mean, I'm just feeling confident and, uh, the crew chief, all of a sudden I get to about two feet and the crew chief calls for power. Um, and he's got a little bit of alarm in his voice. He's power, power. And so I, you know, I'm confused that he's calling it, but I, okay, cool. So I just, I squeak in a little bit of power. Uh, and it just, I come to a stop at like six inches. Um, and me and the other, pilot are looking at each other like what is he you know um and then I hear the oh sorry sir uh yeah I, I thought I saw something but I didn't my bad but you know hey no problem man thank you for calling it uh you thought you saw something you called it you didn't hesitate and so you know but we could have yelled at him been like man you screwed up my approach right but that would what is he going to speak up the next time no absolutely not. Um and so that you know I, we try to you know we can all be wrong when we announce things and it's okay Um, and create that trusting, fostering environment. And and we try really hard to do that here, too. Yeah,
1: and I think it's important. I mean, pilots, by and large, sometimes have a bit of a type A personality. (laughs) Uh, I would like to say I'm an exception, but uh, there's a little ego in here. Um, You know, and so uh, being willing to learn and and, uh, learn from others' experiences, whether it's a pilot or a crew member, I think is vital, specifically in the air, air medical world. Um, for you kind of transitioning back to you starting as a line pilot, um, again, a lot of our listeners are intrigued about air medical. Mm -hmm. What is, uh, first off, what airframe were you flying since you were afloat? Were you kind of uh, checked out in all the airframes or?
0: Uh, I started out in, uh, uh, Augusta 119s. Um, and then, um, when we got the EC 135, so I became a check pilot on the 119 and on the EC 135. And so I was, I was flying both of those. Cool. And uh, I guess as a float,
1: I mean, I, that's probably pretty cool because you get to experience yeah. different locations. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I, when I worked there in medical, I was just kind of at one spot, mm-hmm. which is nice. You get comfortable with your service area and comfortable with the people. Um, I guess that could also present some challenges at times where you're coming into a base and having to kind of reacquaint yourself with new location, new people. Was that difficult?
0: You know, for me, it was it was actually kind of fun because you get to meet new people. Um, you get to work with, with different people, and, and you might it might go, you know, four or five months between the times when you visit a base, and then you're working with the same people that you worked with a few months ago. Um, so it, for me, it was an opportunity, and it was an opportunity to learn from a lot of people. Um, you know, you could see, you know, how different med crews kind of, what were their techniques. We do try to be very standardized here, um, so that makes it easier so that, you know, we, we always used to... You know, when I was in the safety role, tell people is if it's me flying or if it's somebody else flying, it should feel the exact same in the back. It should, you know, just other than the voice uh, sure. that, that's talking to you. Um, but I, you know, for me, it was I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed being able to meet a lot of the people I've flown with with a good percentage of the people in the company. Uh, when I got into the training role, then I was doing check rides with a lot of different people and training flights with a lot of the different pilots. Um, so just kind of getting to get out there and interact with people, and then again, learning everywhere you go. You are know, never, you're never too good or experienced or anything to, to learn. And, you know, there's pilots in our company that have way more hours than I do. I mean, I don't, I'm not a particularly high time guy. Um, but, um, you know, just learn everything you can everywhere you go.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think probably now in this position that you're in now leading this company, being able to have that experience of being at multiple bases probably gives you a better perspective, uh, than maybe if you were just at one base. So I'm sure that's been helpful. Um. In Air Medical, one of the things that I struggled with was the nights. I didn't necessarily love uh, the nights. It was hard for for me to adjust. We did seven straight, so that also, um, you know, I have some things to say about that, but maybe that's for a different podcast. But, (laughs) you know, that was hard for me. What were some of the struggles for you coming into uh, Air Medical that uh, presented more challenge than you thought?
0: Yeah, you know, I think um, as a float, right, you're going to different places all over. And so you may show up at a base and you've done your your local area exam or whatever, but, um, you know, you don't have a lot of experience flying in that area. Um, And so, you know, I remember I took off for a flight out of Aurora uh, one time as – early morning, right before um, shift change, and uh, I think the ceilings were calling, you know, 1,400 feet or something, and, and so I, you know, I looked at it, I looked at the HEMS tool, I'm checking on my weather, I'm like, okay, yep, we can do that safely, and, you know, it's within limits, uh, and so I took off, and I got about, you know, two miles out, and realized, nope, can't do it, so I turned around, came back, and by that time, the, the guy that had been here for 20 years, uh, Bob Smart, he, he's coming out to meet us and help get fuel and stuff. And I said, yeah, I was trying to go up to this, this LZ. And he's like, Oh no, you need 1700 feet for that. You can't do that at 14, you know? And so, but he had that knowledge of yeah, years of and years and I didn't know. So uh, consequently, you know, as a float, be more conservative, you know, you, you're not going to know all the tricks of every different area. Sure. And so it's important to use good judgment um, to, to know what your, your box is and, and just make, Good decisions, um, and don't be afraid to turn around. You know, if it's if the weather is deteriorating, you get to your inner decision point, or you think I might get to my end, Turn around. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's much better to do that than, than the alternative.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's tough with air medical, right? Because the purpose is to go and hopefully help someone else on a really bad day that they're yeah. having. But there's obviously uh, weather is obviously a huge factor of of sometimes having to turn down a call or turn around. Um, and I think it's important for all pilots to, uh, especially air medical, you know, constantly evaluating. Um, I mean, I was on the phone coming down here today and today seemed like a weird kind of weather day Mm -hmm. for me because I'm driving down I-5 and I can see Mount Hood, but it's like this weird haze and I'm talking to my buddy who's flying air medical right now. I'm like, man, this would be one of those days that would be a weird because you can't really tell where the ceiling begins you know obviously I wasn't looking at any weather products or, sure. while driving but it just but, like visually seeing like god it's weather can be so weird you know I can see Mount Hood but maybe the ceiling's 900 feet mm-hmm. you know or whatnot, and you know constantly evaluating and I, I know for me I did get nice being kind of in one specific location right. because um, in Texas like I could look at the forecast and see where the second the dew point and temp me i just knew it'd get foggy just what it did there Mm -hmm. in south texas and so being able to kind of have that area familiarization uh was helpful um so coming from line pilot uh you do your training obviously kind of step into you know it sounds like you naturally kind of just progressed your way in and you took advantage of opportunities as they came um I'm guessing when you took the safety officer position, did that take you away from flying?
0: No, I, you know, I still tried to stay in flying um, as much as I could. So less, but I was still picking up shifts when I could. I think my first couple weeks I had nine shifts or something, you know, in, in a row. Uh, and and so, um, you know, I still tried to fly. Once I, you know, kind of moved into the um, more executive roles, it, I made a valiant attempt at one, I think the last... Like three years ago, I went, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to get recurrent. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Uh, And I did a couple, and it just, it just didn't work. So, um, you know, again, to be, to be safe, to be proficient um, and and really, really good at, you know, our pilots that we have are fantastic. And so for me to go out there and, you know, kind of fake it once a month or something, you know, that's, that's not fair to the crews. It's not fair to the, Yeah. I've got other things that I can do. They're, they're the ones that are out there training hard, working hard at that stuff and, and being the experts and, and so, you know, kind of leave it to them at this point. It's, it's nice to be able to do it. We have a, a simulator here, so every once in a while I'll jump in and shoot a couple of instrument approaches just to, you know, kind of shake the dust off a little bit. Sure. But, um, but, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, at sometimes, you know, you kind of make a career choice, yeah. you know. And um, specifically when you come to the executive side, you know, I think, again, currency, recency is obviously yeah. a big deal, but also just bandwidth. You know, there's a lot probably on your plate that you're dealing with. So, if you're you know taking a shift here or there, you know maybe your mental state could be somewhere else, so that could be definitely difficult um obviously, like you said, superior pilots here at Lifelight Network, I know a lot of them uh small industry, and so I know a lot of uh, a lot of my friends fly here uh, for our listeners that are interested in working at lifelight yeah. what are the minimums uh and what kind of individual are you looking for as a pilot for this company? Uh,
0: yeah, great question. So I think, you know, we, we're CAMES accredited program, and, and CAMES requires 2,500 hours. Um, and so that's kind of the, the the basics is, you know, kind of 2,500 hours. And by the time you get to there, you know you probably have the other requisite experience, whether it's, you know, uh, I think it's 100 hours of instrument, um, uh-huh. you know. And, and it, so it's helpful if you know, night vision goggle experiences, you know, n- night experience. Um, and then it, advice I would give to anybody, uh, what, w- no matter what you're going to do in, in the helicopter flying world, is get as much instrument time as you can. Um, you may never use it, but if you ever have to use it, at least you've got it in your back pocket totally um and so uh you know i would i would say if if you ever get a chance you know, get in a simulator so that you can actually experience that transition right or or if you can you know if you can get fortunate enough to fly in an instrument platform as a co-pilot you know start there um and then and just try to build that um obviously there's phenomenal pilots that have never flown in a cloud that they do you know all, you mentioned the buzzsaw thing or the torch light. I mean. Crazy amount of skill that it yep. takes, you know, the long lining thing. I mean, totally. crazy amount of skill um, and, and competence. So, you know, the instrument stuff's not particularly applicable to those regimes. But again, if, if you ever had to use it, you'd have it in your back pocket.
1: Yeah, I mean, and especially with Air Medical, um, for me getting into Air Medical, my disuse and non-recency of my instrument mm-hmm. ticket was apparent. Yeah. And I struggled a little bit in the uh, initial training they were doing it in the simulator there and then some hood practice in the aircraft. Uh, knocking off that rust was difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And it's so valuable to be able to feel comfortable. Um, you know, again, I, I would consider myself a phenomenal VFR <laughs> pilot. Maybe not so much anymore, but I used to be okay. You know, but I was never, I was kind of on the mindset of like clouds, you know, stay away at all costs. Right. And, You know, what I learned flying air medical is you could do everything right. You could call your weather perfectly. You could make all the right decisions and something could change on the weather, especially Mm -hmm. at night. This big sprawling area in South Texas where I was, lots of vast area up here in the Pacific Northwest where things can change. Mm -hmm. And if that changes and you're up there, being able to uh, admit that you're there and then have a plan of action of, okay, I'm... In the clouds, what next? And, you know, being able to be comfortable in IMC inadvertently. Um, I know at at the company I worked at, it saved a lot of lives, you know. Um, I think the year that I left, we ended up having eight or nine uh, entries into IMC Mm. by accident. And We were a strict VFR program. And they're all not events because every quarter pilots went, they trained, we did our simulator time there, and we practiced. Um, and in all those situations, the pilots did everything right. they just things changed. the weather changes really quick down there and so um yeah I, I can't echo enough what you said if if you're out there and you have the chance to go and experience uh ifR flying even in an airplane mm-hmm. you know uh get, get getting into a cessna and going shooting approaches, getting that comfortability of entering a cloud. I was recently talking with my buddy Ian former Marine, and he was uh, a crew chief in the 53s. Um, you know, and he was saying, man, the first time he entered IMC, for he worked for LifeWide of Maine. Okay. Uh, he said that, you know, the first th- he he felt like he was dirty. You know, yeah, he felt yeah. like he was doing something wrong, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and it's just if, if you can gain that experience and comfortability, you can cut probably a lot of the anxiety that goes into entering the clouds for the first time.
0: Well, and as you know, I mean that anxiety can cause you to make mistakes, right? Totally. So, you know, clearly, you don't want to go in a an IMC. Avoid it, of course, it, to the maximum extent. You know, and, and I don't want to under you know undermine the seriousness of that situation. But um, training, you know, and and just you know try to get in the sim and, and train as much as you can. And again, it it's all about hard work, and and learning everything that you can, so that you can see, and learn from other people's mistakes. You you can see what mistakes could happen. You can kind of project and predict uh Oh, I'm getting myself into a situation here. Maybe, and so maybe you stop before it ever, totally, um, anything ever comes close to happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, they always talk about the Swiss cheese, right? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's not usually just one singular event that leads to a yeah. negative outcome. You know, it's usually a series of events. So let's say that I'm I'm a pilot, which is true, true story. <laughs> I am. Yeah. And I, I come here. I get hired on at Life Flight. Yeah. What does your guys's uh, training program look like uh, from kind of day one mm-hmm. through, you know, getting to base, maybe doing some shadow shifts, yeah. things like that. What does that all look like as a new pilot here?
0: Yeah, so, you know, we, we start out once a month. We have, we call it new employee orientation or NEO. Um, and, and everybody that's starting that month all comes together from all the disciplines. Um, and so we, we that's about... Two and a half days of just basic company kind of stuff. History. I'll talk to everybody. Uh, You know, I'm the first person they see when they get here. We talk mostly about safety and quality. Um, And I'll sit down for about three hours and and we'll we'll talk through safety stuff, safety systems. Um, You know, I want them. I want everybody in the company to hear from me that my emphasis is on safety and quality. It's amazing. Um, And so we do that. And then you know the last part of that for the operational folks, uh, so pilots paramedics, nurses, mechanics, um, and EMTs is, is crew resource management. So we do a half a day of crew resource management right at the beginning. Um, And then they'll break off into their kind of separate disciplines. And so as a pilot, then you'll go off on into our training kind of pipeline. Um, So depending on the aircraft, you know, you'll have to do ground school. Um, We've got, you know, both in-person ground school, there's some online modules that that people do. Uh, And then we try to get everybody in the simulator um, and, uh, and then the flight training following following the simulator um you obviously have breaks in there and training to get, get your time off um but then you'll go in shadow and and so you'll you'll shadow uh once you're done with your chuck ride and, and stuff uh, you're, and, and you'll go shadow and, and you'll kind of learn the ropes and observe and watch um, for a while um, and then you'll have you know kind of start standing shifts um, and when you start standing shifts so we have different you know when you first get here, it's there's different weather minimums, so we, we increase those weather minimums okay. as a risk mitigation and mostly to take sure. the pressure off of of the pilots. One thing we don't do we don't our flights are flight requests. They're not. We don't call missions, um, and and there's a reason for that, right? We we don't want the mentality of the pilot that you know you're out there doing some sort of you know search and rescue or or you know something where you should take extra risk. No. You know we have minimums uh, we have you know and then we have advanced you know higher minimums for newer people um, in order to purposely take that pressure off um, like hey I can't do that because these are my minimums now and so um, it's not a mission it's a flight request and sure. I, I'm turning down this flight request yeah
1: because they don't uh, I don't meet the, the requirements
0: and then you know if depending on the the Aircraft that, that we'll either send you to, if if we can, if there's a simulator available, we'll send you to simulator training. So EC135, uh, we have some contract simulators that we'll use. We actually dry lease the simulators, so we'll send our own training people down with you as as a pilot, oh, cool. um, and we'll put uh, put you through the simulator training. Um, and then, uh, or you know, we'll use Bell Training Academy as a partner that we use for the 429 um, and the 407s. Uh, so we'll send them actually uh, down to the Bell to Bell's facility. Oh, that's incredible. Anytime we can do factory training, we try to do that.
1: I'm very jealous of that. I um, I think you know the the former company that I flew for, they, did, they had a good training mm-hmm. program, um, but they didn't. We didn't get to go to the Bell mm-hmm. uh, training academy, and I feel like that would have been really a nice benefit. You know, going down and flying with instructor pilots that fly those machines every yeah. single day for the purpose of practicing emergency procedures. Mm-hmm. Uh, would have been really valuable. So that's really cool. I didn't know that you guys did that. Um, I'm jealous. <laughs> um, I might have to knock Leave off the, openings. I might have to knock <laughs> off the resume. Uh, yeah, I know. Any in Bend, that would be nice. You know, I don't want to go too far. We do uh, have a base in Redmond. Right I, I think one of my I don't know what he's flying. A guy that I worked with at another air medical company, he now is a life flight guy. Okay. And, um, you know, he's, I think he's over in Bend too. And yeah, I see him skiing quite a bit and, you know, it's, that's a good life over there.
0: And they're 182 days off. Yeah, 182 days of time to ski. off. Mm-hmm.
1: Lots of time to ski. Um, very cool. With, um, is there any recurrent training throughout the year mm-hmm. or is it just you doing your check right every year?
0: Yeah. So we do, um, we do recurrent training and we try to, we try to centralize the recurrent training. So, uh, regardless of airframe, we try to bring people back to Aurora. We do we do the recurrent training even if they're like our simulators of Bell 407 GXI sim. Um, but we'll put 119 guys and, and gals in, into the sim. Um, you know EC135 pilots will put them in the sim as well just uh, when we can, you know just to it's, it's a great experience. Sure. You know, the EC135 is a little bit less because they get to go to the simulator. Full level D, yeah, full motion uh, type deal, and so and so they're they're doing that, but we like to get as much use out of the simulator as we can, and, and we like to standardize our our training, standardize our recurrent, um, and then of course we have the quarterly uh, double IMC training flights that we do. Another thing that we you know talk about proficiency and, and uh, with night vision goggles, um, particularly, uh, you know, we encourage the pilots that hey, you know what, I haven't flown in a while, I need to go out and get. you know a night vision recurrent you know proficiency flight and so we go do it yeah Um, you know they just call the operational control center and say hey I need to do a proficiency flight tonight at you know so this is what time we're gonna do it and and we encourage that Um, and then we do have even metrics like you haven't done one and you haven't done a night flight in 30 days therefore you must um, go do a a proficiency that happened
1: to me a lot like I would get on my show okay I gotta go do my currency Mm -hmm. you know uh, cuz you're off you know you're only one night you know if you have a slow week of Mm -hmm. nights you know, you may not get the opportunity to go fly. And before you know it, you've reached your, your limit. So, uh, at Lifelight, how does it work? Uh, a request comes in. Yeah. It goes to uh, an operations control center or a dispatch.
0: Yeah, so our, uh, our communication center and our operational control center are co-located in Boise. We like to have them co-located because it gives awareness. So the operational control sp- uh, specialist can hear when a flight request comes in from a customer somewhere, and they can already start checking the weather. Um, they kind of know where that request is going to go. And so they're independently checking the weather to make sure they think that the weather is safe, um, and then the pilot will get the, the flight request so the conspo will uh, page the flight request to the, the pilot uh, and the you know pilot will you know hey check in weather or I can accept you know clear blue day and they they've, they stay on top of their weather you know pretty pretty good so they can make a, a decision pretty quickly um, and then if there's any kind of a disagreement between the pilot and the operational control specialist, uh, you know, they'll conference them in and they'll talk about that. Um, you know, essentially, though, anybody can say no to the flight request, whether it's the paramedic or even the mechanic, spec uh, OCS, um, anybody can say, hey, you know what, no. Um, and, and that's, and, and we encourage that, right? Because somebody could see something that, that, that somebody else doesn't. Sure. Um, so then they'll, the pilot will make the decision, um, and uh, and then if if they say yes, then Okay, away they go, and, and the OCS agrees. Away they go, and, and they do the flight. If they say no, um, if it's for the destination or the, the patient pickup location, um, then we will not offer that to another pilot. Um, it would probably go to a fixed wing at that point. Sure. Um, you know, because then you know they've got uh, d- different minimums. Um, if it's in route, then maybe we'll look and say, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. They can't take the flight because there's weather between them and that scene, but this other base is coming from a completely different direction. There's no weather there, uh, and maybe they can get it. So if that's the case, then we will offer it, but we'll say, hey, uh, flight request for this location, so you know this other base turned it down. Would you like to conference between those you know, and, and talk to that person of the OCS, and then we can get that conference call going as well. Totally.
1: Yeah, that's good. I uh, For our listeners out there that may not be kind of familiar with an operations yeah. control center, Um, who are they? You know, obviously you talked a little bit about they're kind of shadowing, making sure, but what kind of actual operational control do they have within your guys' system?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, there's a bunch of nuances. It's mandated by the FAA if you're an operator with 10 or more bases. Um, But essentially, they're they're people uh, that have specialized training in in weather and and operations. Um, And, you know, some of ours are, are former pilots, um, that uh, you know just for whatever reason decided they, they'd rather do this operational con- control job um, and uh, and so they're they're really there as a second set of eyes um, and, and it's a really valuable safety tool uh, for us um, and and I'm glad that, that we have it um, and we would even if the FAA didn't mandate it we would have it because I think it's just such a such a valuable uh, resource to have.
1: Sure and you mentioned uh, something uh, about how anyone can kind of turn down a flight. It's not just the burden of the yeah. pilot to say no. Right. Um, you know, I've heard terms like the 51% rule, where you know everyone in the crew holds, you know, 51%, meaning at yeah. any time a flight can be vetoed. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the same stance here, obviously. So that's um, again, you know, um, I've never personally been in a situation because I think it goes back to communication. Mm-hmm. You know, I would start my shift with my crew. Yeah, and do a good thorough crew brief. Understand the day, and I always kind of felt like you know we as a collective group would make the decision of go or no go. Mm-hmm. I felt like maybe if I was having a medic have to do a fifty-one percent on me, right. then I maybe didn't do a good job at communicating, because uh, I feel like if if I wasn't if I was listening to them, I would just turn down the flight. So it's good that they hold that power, but on the same token, I also feel that. At least the way that I perceived it as a pilot, is that if it got to that point, then maybe I missed a step in my process.
0: And I, I would agree. And that's but you know, and and that's that crew resource management thing. That's why we we, we do uh, spend quite a bit of time and, and energy on crew resource management to, like you said, have that familial conversation so that. It doesn't get to the point where somebody says, "You know what? I'm I'm going to veto the flight." It's like you're having a conversation, and and everybody you know kind of can come to that collective decision. Ultimately, obviously, it's the pilot in commands you know is responsible for the safe and orderly conduct of the flight. Um, and but you know, uh, everybody it's, they're they're in the aircraft too, right? Yeah, yeah, they <laughs> should know? have a voice, and yep, they do absolutely. And that's a big change
1: from, um, you know, this industry has evolved a lot. Yeah. Helicopters in general, air medical hugely you know advancements in technology and just uh, crew resource management things like that Uh, we are kind of wrapping up yeah um i do like to finish off just with some low-level fun questions (laughs) so obviously i mean you're the ceo of a company first off congratulations on that um i know that's kind of a recent recent promotion um so that's really exciting and really cool i would be curious to actually know how many other ceos of air medical companies started as line pilots for that company. I feel like that's super valuable uh, to be able to go through a company like that because um, you truly have been at every section of this, of this company. So that's cool. So when you're not here being the CEO, what are you doing for fun? <laughs>
0: I don't have any time for fun. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, family, you know, uh, wife and daughter, we like to ski, um, hike, camp. Uh, you know, it's Oregon, so out, outdoor stuff. Uh, we don't have to worry about ticks, or uh, mo- usually not snakes, unless you get over to Eastern Oregon. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Out- Outdoor stuff. Um, I, I saw don't... a
1: lot of snakes in Texas. <laughs> yeah. I saw a lot of rattlesnakes. I'm- and I'm like Indiana Jones. I'm pretty brave, but terrified of snakes. Uh, so, yeah. Now, of course, I'm in Bend, and I think there is snakes there, are, there yep. too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is upsetting. Um, well, Ben, thank you so much for having me here. This has been an awesome opportunity. Um, it's been fun to learn more about Life Flight Network if if guys or gals are listening right now and they're at that 2500 hours yeah. and they're ready to go, they're charged up, how do they find you guys, how do they find job openings, what's kind of that first step for them?
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, org is our website, all of our job openings are there. I think we recruit on LinkedIn as well. Um, so. Uh, yeah, lifeflight.org, and we, we do have openings now. So, um, you know, we're growing. Uh, we're we're strong company. So, uh, you know, bring on the applications. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, GXIs, 429s, yeah. 135s, 119s. I mean, a lot of super cool airframes for yeah. pilots to fly, yeah. and not to mention Pacific Northwest. In my opinion, I'm a little biased, but <laughs> is there a better place? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I love Tex—I loved where I lived in Texas, but nothing beats the the Pacific Northwest. Well, uh, Ben, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, congratulations again, and um, I'm really excited to see LifeLight continue to grow and prosper. And
0: uh, we appreciate what you all do. Yeah, thanks, Halsey. Thanks for coming out. Anyway. Yeah, appreciate it. Cool.
1: <laughs> awesome. Great. I think that went well.